Well, today is Father's Day. If you're not aware of that, we want to take just a moment in our service to, to recognize our dads, to have a chance to pray for them. Uh, we, don't, we don't do this to somehow stay in compliance with Hallmark, but Scripture, uh, scripture really does call upon us to honor our fathers and our mothers. And as a part of that as well, it, it, it puts a lot of responsibility on dads to raise up their children in the things of the Lord, not to exasperate their children, but to instruct them in God's ways. So we want to take a moment and, and, and recognize our dads. First of all, let me say, as you leave today, out in the back in the lobby, there are some books out there that we've bought for our dads. You can kind of pick from any number of books that are out there. We'd love for you to swing by and pick one up and uh, as our gift to you. But I'd like to invite our dads to stand, all of our dads. I want to take just a moment to pray for... You dads in our service, and then we'll get into our word for today. So let's spend just a moment in, in praying together. God, thank you so much for the men that stand before me, because we know they also stand before you, and that by your providence, by your plan, you have placed them into their families in very special roles, that of being dads. God, we know that you've placed upon them a tremendous amount of responsibility to be leaders in spiritual things to show their children and their rest of their families and well as those they relate to what it means to live as a man of God. God, in that journey, we pray for these men today. Some of them still have small children at home with a task of nurturing the character and the values and the convictions of their children. is still a, a tremendous challenge. God, we pray each and every day that you would grant them with your strength and with your wisdom and with your understanding. Allow their love for you and a love for their families and a love for their children, to be a continual source of strength to them as they seek to be your representative in their home, in the way that they live their lives, and the things that they believe, and the things that they're committed to. God, we know that others are at a different place in their parenting journey. Their children may be grown and out on their own, but still in many ways they remain the voice of counsel to their children. Many of them, like me, you know, call, will have their children call their parents and, and ask for advice and guidance. And God, what an incredible privilege as well as a responsibility it is to provide godly advice as children are asking questions about their relationships with their families, particularly with their spouses, questions about their careers, about financial decisions. God, in the midst of all of that, we pray that you would equip each and every one of us to be the person that you have called us to be in our homes. God, we thank you for dads. We thank you for these that stand before us. And we pray, that, pray today that you would bless them as we honor them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. I want to read just a, a few verses from the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. You, you don't really need to turn there, uh, but you can if you'd like to. I'm in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning with the 15th verse. And I want to use this as a springboard to the topic of our, our message today. As Jesus was praying for his disciples the last night of their lives, uh, of his earthly life, he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And with these few verses, Jesus acknowledges as well as almost creates the pothole that we look at today. We've been working through a series of the letters that Jesus wrote through the Apostle John to the seven churches that made up Asia Minor. And through each one of these, we've been looking at challenges, spiritual challenges that churches and believers face in every generation, places where they can get off track. We looked at 
the whole idea of just kind of losing our, our love for God even as we continue to kind of do the things of God. We've looked at how hardship can derail us in our faith. Last week we looked at the whole issue of compromise. And today we come to the question of how is it that you and I, as the children of God, live in the world but not of the world? The Scripture clearly calls upon us to be people who are in the world. I don't know how you're the light of the world if you're not in the world. I don't know how you're the salt of the earth if you're not a part of the earth. I don't know how you're an ambassador for Christ if you never leave the throne room of Christ. You have to get out there and mix in the world. Jesus sent us into the world. As we go into the world, we face the challenge, well, how do am I in the world but really not of it? And for generations, literally from the moment that prayer was prayed by Jesus through today, every single day of our journey as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we ask ourselves, formally or informally, we make choices about what it means to be in the world, but not of it. That creates an issue of expediency. How much of contemporary culture do I... Do I embrace and adjust? And what does it mean about the way that I live and my lifestyle and behaviors and values and convictions and etc. so that I can actually be in the world but somehow not be of it? And we wrestle with those issues. The letter to the church at Thyatira that's found in, John, in, in John's Revelation, chapter 2, deals with this issue of expediency. And I'd, I'd love for you to t- turn, if you would, in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start with the 18th verse today. We're going to be looking at the longest of the letters to any of the seven churches. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 1041. And we're going to deal with this prime question that every generation deals with. How is it that we can be full-fledged members of society, the light of the world, yet still absolutely ensure that we do not deny our faith? How do we deal with this issue of expediency? The church at Thyatira was wrestling with that issue. They were trying to find a way. We read, beginning with the 18th verse, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God. Actually, that's the only time this phrase is used in the book of Revelation. Everywhere else, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man or some other phrase, but here he's called the Son of God. The one whose eyes are like a fiery flame, primarily because Thyatira was known for its bronze workers, its, its, you know, and with all the flames. And those whose feet are like bronze say, I know your works. Your love, faithfulness, service, endurance. Your last works are greater than the first. This is a growing church. Good things are happening. They're pursuing God. They're they're, they're not being of the world. They're being of Christ. But I have this against you, verse 20. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But that she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her practices. I will kill her children with the plague. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the deep things of Satan, as they say, I do not put any other burden on you, but hold on to what you have until I come. The victor and the one who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will shepherd them with an iron scepter, and he will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Anyone who has an ear should listen 
to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a powerful letter. Here was a church that was situated in a city about 40 miles to the southeast of Pergamum that we looked at last week. It's, as you're, you know, we've been, the churches have been kind of moving up the west coast of Asia Minor, and now we've started to move inland. And this city was located in the middle of a, a big plain that ran north to south. And it had tremendous strategic value because this north to south plain actually connected two plains that ran along a river, one to its north, one to its south. So any army that came marching into the region as it kind of made its way over the last of the hills and hit this valley, they could go to the north and down the riverbed right to Pergamum, or they could go to the south and back out to the coast along the river, the river plain and right out to another major city. So they used this valley and they built the city Thyatira basically as a military outpost. And it was just basically a garrison. Commerce developed around it and those kinds of things. But over the centuries before Christ, it got wiped out a number of times. Because their job was to hold the line long enough so that the forces back in Pergamum or some other place could get ready to repel the force. And they just got sacrificed over and over again. All of that changed when the Romans took over the region and brought the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And Thyatira, as it sat here in the middle of this plain where all this traffic went by, became a thriving commercial center. They had all kinds of, of skills that developed. There were makers of wool, others who prepared linen, people who made outer garments. There were dyers who turned clothes into wonderful colors. There were workers of leathers, others who were tanners, some who were potters, some who were bakers, others who traded in slavery. And then there were the bronze smiths. We see Lydia, who came from Thyatira, who was a, a dyer of purple. She made, you know, purple clothes that the rich people would live. We see her on a different continent, in Europe, selling her goods in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16. And in the midst of this thriving commercial center, a church took root. We don't know exactly how the church got started. You might speculate that when Lydia came back, she helped start the church, was a nucleus. That'd be a wonderful testimony. The people living out their faith in a contagious way as they go back home. Something that we should be doing. Others think that as people traveled back and forth between Thyatira and Ephesus while Paul was there, they came to know Christ and, and a nucleus was kind of developed that launched this church in Thyatira. But all wasn't well in this church. There's a lot of good things. They still had their passion for Christ. They were doing more than they, they were faithful, they were serving, they were praying, they were reading the Bible, they were trying to do all this stuff. In the name of, and, it was, and their latter works were better than at the beginning. They were still alive, but they had a problem. And the problem came as they dealt with this issue of how to be in the world, but not of it. You see, all of this commercial strength of the city had brought up, and, and, and all these guilds, we might use the word unions, had taken root in the city. And so if you were a baker, you had to be a part of the baker union, the guild, the baker guild. And if you were a tanner, you know, work with leather, you had to join that group. And if you were dealt with bronze and made other kinds of things out of the furniture, you had to join that group. If you were somebody who dyed garments to make them, you had to be a part of that guild. And, and, so, and, and if you weren't a part, you didn't work. If you weren't a card-carrying member of the guild, you were out. No job, no income, no food, no place to live. No friends. You were out. So clearly, there's a lot of pressure to join, right? Unfortunately, every single one of those guilds had their own patron god. Today, we, you know, some, of, some Christian traditions have like the patron saints. 
of the, mer- of the merchants and the maritime, etc. Well, they had their patron gods. So to be a part of these guilds or unions so you can make a living and care for your family and have some friends, somebody to share your faith with, you had to be a part of this guild. And being a part of the guild also meant that you had to go to their celebrations where they worshipped their patron god, offered up sacrifices to this idol, and then joined in the festivities that almost always broke down into sexual immorality. A lot of pressure on the believers. How are we going to make this work? If I don't work, I starve. If I don't join the guild, I can't have a job. And in the midst of that, this teaching arose. And there was an advocate that John refers to here with a symbolic name of Jezebel. Some of you are familiar with this name Jezebel from the Old Testament. She was actually from uh, a Sidoan, which is a, a nation along the coast in Palestine. And when Ahab became king of the northern king of, kingdom of Israel, he married Jezebel out of expediency. It was good for the nation of Israel to have a trade partner who had access to the Mediterranean Sea. So he married her even though she was a heathen. She was not a follower of Yahweh, was not a follower of God. And she came into the pe- among the people and she began to lead them astray. She ordered people to build, you know, various places of worship to Baal. And the people went after the false gods and they engaged in, in uh, all the fertility rites that went with it. And in that same symbolism, he picks her up that name up, and he brings it forward and says, you have among you, as you struggle with this issue of how do I be in the world and not of the world, you have tolerated, you've allowed this thinking to develop among you, and you've allowed advocates to stay among you who say it's okay to do this stuff. We don't know exactly what they were teaching. We do know that the outcome of that, the the output, what came from it was an acceptance of being a part of the guild, engaging in the idol worship, and with it all of the facilities festivities that went with it, including the sexual immorality. Perhaps, you know, we we think they might have been teaching some form of dualism, which means that there's this sharp distinction between your body and your spirit. So in the church, there was this kind of thought that was being allowed to disseminate among the believers that, you know what, as long as your heart's right before God, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. And they just gave them freedom to go. There were others who, who things from this phrase here in the text about the dark, the deep things of Satan, that what actually they were teaching was saying, you know what, in order for God to conquer Satan, God's people need to go infil- infiltrate those who are closest to Satan. So we need to go as undercover agents, you know, and get in there and participate in all the stuff that they're doing, and then we'll take it over and we'll bring it down. And there was this kind of advocacy that was going on. But the outcome was that the people were being taught, it's okay to compromise. Do what's expedient so that you can be in the world and you can also be of it, but somehow think that you're walking with God. In the midst of that, we hear God speak. You know, it's, it's interesting to ask ourselves a question. Does that really happen today? Do we have any Jezebel-type teaching that goes on among us? Is this kind of compromise of being somehow trying to live both in the world and being of it, but somehow or another really not? Be, you know, they, is that kind of stuff happening among us today? I, I think anybody who's really honest and takes a look at the state of Christianity in the Western world would say, yeah, it's a struggle for us today. And, and literally any kind of analysis of the, the lifestyle of believers and their convictions and values and the things that they hold Compared to those who claim to have no relationship with Christ, there's a very small distinction. It's almost like we live in a time now where we have defined righteousness by being just a little bit more righteous than the unrighteous, rather than being really righteous before God. 
as long as we're just a little bit different than those who are really lost from God, then we can somehow be different. But we don't really have to be righteous the way that God's called us to. And it goes up and down the line. I mean, you know, there's just such, such struggles for us. You know, it's a sad commentary, and I, and I know there's a lot of human pain and those kinds of things that go in its wake, but, but the divorce rate inside the church is exactly the same as in the world. That's a sad thing. The, the joy and the, the thrill of marriage, that oneness, as we talked about yesterday in the wedding I did with Nicole Blaze, it's, you know, it's, that's missing from so many in the church as well as in the world. There's many ways in which we've come to accommodate the world that's around us. We've taken truthfulness. And we've accepted it. Well, we just need to manage the truth instead of really being truthful. Language. You know, the Scripture says that no unseemly thing, no foul language from, come from our mouths. And yet there are many believers who struggle with foulness in their language, with swearing and other kinds of things. And, it's, and we, we just kind of write it off as not being a big issue for us. There are people who struggle with unforgiveness. We look at the issues of our days, the values that we have to struggle with, the things like abortion and the issues of homosexuality and premarital sex and etc. And, and certainly we need to be compassionate and engaging and contagious. To, but those things are just wrong and many believers no longer hold to those convictions because it's unpopular. It seems intolerant. We struggle with dress codes and family budgets and lifestyles just like everybody else. There are families who miss months at a time from being a part of the fellowship of the church because they've got commitment somewhere else rather than to the things of God on a Sunday morning or whenever else they choose to worship. We've come to a place today where nominal Christianity is what we expect. Just to be a little bit Christian is enough. Yeah, we struggle with expediency. We've arrived there because we think this is what it takes for us to get by living in our world. Are there Jezebels out there still teaching today? I hope there's none at hope. Our commitment is to stay true to God's word. Celebrate it when it says God loves us, forgives us, that he's merciful towards us. And also to hear its challenge to us when it says that we're compromising our convictions. But we try to stay true to it. But, but is there teaching like that out there in the world? Yeah, there certainly is. I think it comes in a couple different forms and certainly it probably runs the spectrum. But there certainly is among the religious community today, some who would reject clear teaching of Scripture to say that this is no longer true or they, they were inaccurate or they didn't understand what they were saying or whatever because somehow or another it doesn't, isn't consistent with their idea of loving people exactly the way they are or being tolerant or being politically correct and, and we teach people are being taught that, that things that are untrue are really true. And that's a form of teaching like Jezebel. But on the other end, there are those who, are, who have really made God about us. That somehow God's full-time occupation is just to make our lives better. I was listening to a guy last night on television for just a couple of minutes. And he's one of these faith preachers, you know. And, and, he, and, he, and I just, just as I was listening to him, you know, the flashy suit, the big hairdo, you know, just really looks sharp. I mean, this guy could sell you a, a bucket of bolts, you know, it's a brand new car. He was just really, really good. You know, and he, you know, he, he's saying, you know, when we get our minds around the, the things that are on God's mind, then God gets his mind around the things that are on our minds. And, you know, if we're passionate about the things that God's passionate about, then he's passionate about the things that we're passionate about. And with that, he gives us everything that we want. And God wants you to be wealthy and healthy and et cetera. And, you know, I got to tell you, and this is a reminder to all of us, the only reason that God saved any of us, myself included, 
is to bring glory to himself. He loves you. He cares about you. But the only reason that he provided salvation is because God cares about his glory. And and it's a whole different perspective. We have taken the incredible things of God and we've turned it into a self-help book on how we live our lives. And we wonder why we never have any spiritual power in the world today. He mentions here in this book about the works. It starts in verse 31. He says, I will examine your minds and heart and I'll give to each of you according to your works. This isn't meant to to be a a repudiation of grace-based salvation. We truly are saved by faith. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn our salvation before God has given to us as a free gift. But with that salvation comes a change of heart. And with that change of heart comes a passion for the things of God. And with a passion for the things of God comes fruit, comes work. And Jesus said he's going to honor those things. And the way he's going to honor it among those of us who are victors and who overcome, he's going to grant us to be right with him in all the incredible things that are going to happen in eternity. You're going to get to rule over the nations. I have no idea what that means. I just know it means that we're going to be with Jesus while he's doing his thing, you know? And the morning star, I think, believes refers to Jesus. And, and we're going to get to be with Jesus forever. It really is worth it to figure out how to deal with this pothole of expediency of how to be in the world but really not be of it i got some thoughts about that for us today because obviously it's an issue that we wrestle with as believers in the 21st century just like they did as believers in the first century i think one of the first things that we need to do if we're going to be overcomers is that we have to constantly compare our convictions to the things of god it is so easy to let our standards drift as we walk through this life. We can look different just because the darkness is getting darker, so therefore we think we shine brighter. And God calls upon us to compare our convictions, the things that we really believe, the things that we really live out, the the values that are shown through our character and our behavior. That's why it saddens me that among the children of God, people who have been walking with God for a long period of time, there is such biblical illiteracy. Because you need to know the things of God. I mean, if you've been away from God, if God's just been working in your life and brought you back into, into, into journey with Him and, and you've just started reading the Bible, certainly there's a learning curve that goes on. But there's many of us who've been walking with Christ for decades and we still don't know a lot of what the Scripture teaches. We need to know the things of God so we can com- constantly compare our convictions against what God says is right. We always need to question our motives. Why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, if it's not a faith, the Scripture says, it doesn't please God. It's, it's of sin. You know, Jesus says here, He's the one who searches and examines the minds and the hearts. It's interesting that the language that you see in here, you know, some of you have different terminologies. I think this English translation is very accurate. But in, in, in the days of when John was writing, the heart would have been the scene as the place of the will, which we would have seen as the mind. And they, they referred to the to the... To the part where the emotions come from is the reeds that were like your gut, you know, or your kidneys, you know. You, you, you felt from your gut and you chose from your heart. You know, he says God examines what we feel and what we think. And we need to constantly be evalu- evaluating, where am I? What am I doing? Who am I, am I while I'm doing it? And question, really, are we intent on pleasing God? And if that's not our primary motivation, we're succumbing to the pothole of expediency. This last one is very, this, this next one is very powerful. And, it, you know, I, I, I have no desire to be one of these guys who just tries to pour guilt upon any of us. But when God's word teaches us things, we need to be ready to embrace it. 
And I got to tell you, the scripture calls upon us to loathe sin. Just for sin itself to make us nauseous. Abhor evil, the scripture says, and flee from it. You know, God loathes sin. He just does. I mean, He loves sinners, but He loathes, He abhors sin. I mean, last week as we looked at the, the letter to Pergamon, they referred to, to Balaam in the Old Testament. And, and in that journey of numbers where he's involved, we see right after the aftermath of his work of, of teaching the Moabites how to lead the people astray, that God purified His people. And 24,000 people died as God purified the body. Because God takes sin seriously. I was reading something this week, uh, and um, I, I thought this author made a, an incredible point. You know, he talked about why was it that Jesus was in such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane? And most of us say, well, you know, he was going to have a rough day the next day. He was going to get the stew beaten out of him. They were going to whip him and beat him and kick him and spit on him and stick thorn or reeds. You know, and, and he was just terrified, you know. But you read down through even just the annals of Christian history, and you see people of faith, martyrs, who would go to the, who'd go to the stake and be ready to burn at the cross, but burn at the stake alive, singing praises to God. Even as the fires rose up around them and their flesh began to roast, they keep singing praises to God. Were they just that much tougher than Jesus? I don't think so. I think Jesus' experiences is unique. You see, Jesus wasn't just going to die. He was going to take the accumulated volume of the wrath of God against sin. And he was going to drink it all in, in one moment. All the fury, all the anger, all the hatred of sin. Jesus was going to drink it all in, in that one experience. And it was as he thought about experiencing the wrath of God in its fullness and its completeness that he sweated drops of blood. And if, we lo- if God loathes sin, then we ought to loathe sin. And I don't think there's any way that we're going to really answer this question of how to live in the world but not being of it if we don't have a healthy, overwhelming loathedness for sin. It says here that God in His judgment on Jezebel and those who, with who refused to repent, that He was going to send them to their sickbed and that He was going to kill them with a pestilence. God loathes sins. Lastly, I think that as you and I are going to, if we're going to overcome this pothole of expediency, we have to be ready to connect with a healthy spiritual community. This was a healthy church. A lot of good things were happening. But God feared that it would become unhealthy as they tolerated, as they allowed this thinking to kind of permeate among them. And it shows the need for all of us in this journey of figuring out what's, what does it mean to be in but not of the world. We need each other in this journey. And, you know, and, and, and this is where in many ways my heart breaks as people just have such a, a casualness about what it means to be connected to the body of Christ. I'm not just promoting life groups or whatever, but we, we allow all kinds of things to crowd out our spiritual connections in our calendars. And then we wonder why it's so hard to walk faithfully with God. Because we need each other in this journey. And if we don't have that time to connect through the week, if we don't connect regularly and worship on a Sunday morning, we are, we are just unprepared to decide how to be in the world but not of it. It's worth the fight because the victor and the one who keeps the works to the end, I'm going to give him authority over the nations just as I have received this from my Father. I'm also going to give him the morning star. Anyone who has ears should hear, should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? Are you listening? Let's pray together for just a minute. I want to give you just a moment to pray on your own. Just where you're at, from your own mind and heart to God's. Just identify 
some places in your life where you say, you know, I'm not sure I've made the right decisions about where it means to be in the world, but not of it. What things does God bring to your heart in the spirit of conviction today that you need to repent of and to change? What's in your life that's not of faith? God, you brought these things in our minds and our hearts today in the spirit of conviction, and you call us to repent. God, like those here on this scripture today, there might be some that won't choose to repent, that will refuse. God, the outcome is not encouraging. Father, we pray today that the spirit of conviction that we feel in our hearts today, but how we've succumbed to this pothole of expediency, saying this is just what it takes to live in the world that it is out there today, that God, with that spirit of conviction, you would bring real change, repentance to our lives so that we might overcome. We know we're responsible now because you've taken it out of the darkness and you've brought it into the light. He who has ears, let him hear what Jesus is saying to the churches. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.